All right, guys, so welcome to part two. This is chapter six, um, nursing care of patients with fluid, electrolyte, and acid-base imbalances. So we're picking up on page 61 under hypernatremia. So hypernatremia occurs when the serum sodium level is above 145 milliequivalents per liter. And the patho behind this is a serum sodium increase, uh, maybe an actual increase or a relative increase. So in an actual increase, the patient receives too much sodium or is unable to excrete the sodium as in kidney failure. In a relative increase, um, the amount of sodium does not change, but the amount of fluid in the intravascular space decreases. Therefore, the percentage of sodium or solute is increased in a relationship um, to the amount of plasma. So in mild hypernatremia, most excitable tissues such as the brain and the neurons of the brain become more stimulated. The patient becomes irritable, has tremors. In severe cases, this uh, tissue respond, fails to respond. Um, so as we said, sodium has a lot to do with your um, central nervous system. So for prevention, prevention of hypernatremia is not as simple as prevention of hyponatremia. Most patients have a sodium excess as a result of an acute or chronic illness. So patients with a potential for electrolyte imbalance must have their IV fluids carefully regulated. So signs and symptoms are going to be thirst. That's the number one symptom to appear. Um, if you eat salty foods such as potato chips, the mountain sodium in your body increases and you become thirsty. Um, other signs and symptoms of hypernatremia are vague and nonspecific until severe excess is present. So a patient with a sodium deficit, the patient experiencing sodium excess has mental change or mental status changes, such as agitation, confusion, personality changes. However, um, this time the cause is too little fluid on the brain tissue, so seizures might also occur. Um, at first, muscle twitches and unusual contractions may be present. Later, skeletal muscle weakness occurs, and that can lead to respiratory failure because your body's not going to be able to properly sustain itself um, if it affects the diaphragm. So if fluid deficit or fluid excess accompanies the hypernatremic state, the patient will also have signs and symptoms associated with these imbalances. Um, the complications are a patient with severe hypernatremia may become comatose or have respiratory arrest, such as skeletal, uh, as the skeletal muscles weaken. Diagnostic tests are going to be the most reliable um, serum sodium level. Uh, this indicates an increase above the normal level. Serum osmolarity may also increase. And if the patient has a fluid imbalance, other lab values such as the bun, hematocrit, and urine-specific gravity are also going to be affected. Um, and that went back to how we could look at hyponatremia as well. So for therapeutic measures, um, if a fluid imbalance accompanies hypernatremia, it is um, treated first. For example, fluid replacement without sodium in a patient with dehydration should correct a relative sodium excess. If the kidneys are not excreting adequate amounts of sodium, diuretics may help um, if the kidneys are functional. So if the kidneys are not functioning properly, dialysis may be ordered. Um, you're also going to watch INO strictly um, and wait for these patients. So the cause of hypernatremia is also treated in an attempt to prevent further episodes of this imbalance. Um, for some patients, a sodium-restricted diet is prescribed. So similar things you're going to do for the hyponatremia and hypernatremia, but there's different, um, just different signs and symptoms and different ways to tell. So now we're going to move on to potassium imbalances. So potassium is the most common electrolyte in the ICF, um, or intracellular fluid, Compartment. Um, only a small amount, 3.5 to 5 milliequivalents per liter, is found in the bloodstream. So small changes in this laboratory value cause changes, major changes in the body. 
Um, potassium is especially important for the cardiac muscle, skeletal muscle, and smooth muscle function. If the serum potassium level falls, the body attempts to compensate by moving potassium from the cells into the bloodstream. So it seems like our body has been doing this with each of these. It's going to pull where it can, and it's going to leave what it can. Um, so the two potassium imbalances are hypokalemia um, and hyperkalemia. Hypokalemia is the most commonly occurring imbalance. So hypo is low, kalemia is potassium. Hyper is going to be in excess uh, kalemia. So hypokalemia and hyperkalemia, there's a K in the middle, and that's the symbol for potassium. So that's how I remember that. Um, hypokalemia occurs when the serum potassium level falls below 3.5 milliequivalents per liter. The patho behind this is that most cases of hypokalemia result in it from inadequate intake of potassium or excessive loss of potassium through the kidneys. Um, so hypokalemia most often occurs as a result of medications, such as your potassium-wasting diuretics, like furosemide or Lasix um, or hydrochlorothiazide. Um, digitalis preparation, so uh, digoxin, lenoxin, and corticosteroids such as prednisone are examples of drugs that cause increased excretion of potassium from the body. Um, so potassium may also be lost through the gastrointestinal tract, which is rich in potassium and other electrolytes. Severe vomiting, diarrhea, and prolonged GI suction can also cause hypokalemia. So major surgery and hemorrhage can also lead to a potassium deficit. So I don't know if you remember or not, but when we went through and we did the NG tube and we were learning how to do placement and how we aspirated to see if we had made it into the stomach, why did we put back what we pulled out? We're thinking, that's disgusting. I just pulled out some stomach contents. Why am I putting this back into my patient? That just seemed really gross to me. Well, it's because you don't want to throw them into an imbalance of something. Because as we said here, potassium um, is heavy in the GI tract. Um, it's rich in potassium and other electrolytes. So you could pull something out and not give it back. And now your patient is going to be suffering from something because um, you sent them into an imbalance. So... Um, we're going to skip over the patient perspective. We're going to keep going down to prevention. We're on page 62. Most patients having major surgery receive potassium supplements in their IV fluids to prevent hypokalemia. Um, for patients receiving drugs known to cause hypokalemia, potassium supplements or foods high in potassium may uh, prevent a deficit. And then they're going to give a, uh, we went through that earlier, the levels. So signs and symptoms. Our um, many body systems are affected by this potassium imbalance. So muscle cramping or muscle fatigue can occur with either a deficit or an excess of potassium. So anytime you hear potassium, K, potassium, K, you are going to think muscles, muscle, 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 muscle. If you do not have enough potassium, what muscle is so strong in your body that is really, you're really relying on? I mean, you can live without an arm. You can live without a leg. You can live without all of your arms and legs. So I'm not thinking, you know, the muscles in my arm are the most important or the muscle in my legs are most important, not even my abs. The most important muscle that I am thinking of is going to be my heart. So if you do not have adequate potassium, your heart is going to suffer the most. Um, you need an adequate amount of potassium for your heart to pump properly so that your body can benefit from the blood flow and oxygen. So, um, so you're going to see muscle cramping. You're going to see muscle fatigue. These are all going to be issues. Um, and then we go on down seeing vital signs might change because the respiratory and cardiovascular system needs potassium to function properly. Diminished skeletal muscle, shallow, ineffective respirations. 
The pulse is typically weak, irregular, and thready uh, because the heart muscle is depleted of potassium, and a major danger is an irregular heartbeat arrhythmia, which can lead to cardiac arrest. Um, orthostatic hypotension may also be present. So here again, we're seeing um, the most issues that we're ha having. It has to do with muscles and then arrhythmia. Your heart's kind of thrown out a little bit. Um, it's not It's not producing the oxygen to your body properly. So the nervous system is usually affected as well, and a patient experiences changes in mental status followed by lethargy. Um, motility of the GI system is slowed, causing nausea, vomiting, abdominal distension, and constipation. Vomiting may um, further increase potassium loss. So lethargy is when you kind of feel tired and you really don't know why you're tired. It's not like you stayed up late or anything, but your body's just kind of dragging and you just are kind of feeling just real slow today. Um, that's a lethargy, uh, lethargic kind of feeling. So also, if your muscles are not producing properly, they're not, you know, working as effectively as they were, then your GI system is going to be slow because your GI system it, um, is meant to push things out, put, you know, break things down and push things out. But peristalsis is like a muscular kind of movement. And so the wave-like things that push all of the food down into your intestines and then all the way out um, is going to be really slowed. So you're going to kind of feel nauseous with that back up. Um, you could be vomiting because of that. You're going to have abdominal distension, meaning your stomach's going to kind of like poke out a little bit and you're going to have constipation. Um, and vomiting might worsen this potassium loss. So you're already suffering from this. And then if you're vomiting because of it, then that's just going to send you into a loop. So complications, if not corrected, hypokalemia can result in death from arrhythmia or respiratory failure and arrest. Um, the patient must be treated promptly before these complications occur. So as we said, the arrhythmia, your heart is suffering because it's a muscle that's really important and the respiratory uh, failure and arrest because if you're not getting that oxygen around properly, then your um, lungs are going to suffer. And then, you know, if you're not breathing, what are you? So our diagnostic tests, um, the primary laboratory test is a serum potassium level. Uh, patient's uh, ECG may show a cardiac arrhythmia associated with potassium deficit. In addition to this decrease in the serum potassium level, the patient may also have an acid-base imbalance known as metabolic alkalosis. So we've messed with this before. We're going to get a little bit more into it, um, but um, just put a little bookmark in this. So metabolic alkalosis. This commonly accompanies hypokalemia and metabolic alkalosis. The serum pH of the blood increases to more than 7.45 so that the blood is more alkaline than usual. Acid-base imbalances are discussed later. So therapeutic measures, um, the goal of treatment is to replace potassium in the body and resolve the underlying cause of the imbalance seems to be the beginning of all of these because you want to get rid of, um, you know, deal with the here and now, fix that and then go back and fix the big, big problem underneath so that this doesn't keep happening because, you know, you can uh, fix a flat in your tire all day long, put a little patch on it, put a little patch on it. But if you don't eventually end up getting that sealed or just getting a new tire, uh, you're keep you're going to keep getting flats. So um, for mild to moderate hypokalemia, um, oral potassium supplements are given. So for severe hypokalemia, IV potassium supplements are given. So, you know, if you come in, it's just a little bit. It's not a big deal. They're going to give you something orally. But if they can see like it's a real deficit, um, they're going to start an IV. So because the kidneys eliminate excess potassium, potassium should be administered only after the patient has voided to be sure the kidneys are functioning. So you don't want to give them anything until you see that their kidneys are properly putting out. So potassium is potentially dangerous drug, especially when administered intravenously in too high concentration. It can cause what? 
What do we say that potassium messes with the most? Muscles, right? So the most important muscle being your heart. So in high concentration, it can cause cardiac arrest. Only IV solutions that are premixed and carefully labeled should be used. Um, potassium is never given by an IV push. The patient's laboratory values must be monitored carefully to prevent giving too much. Um, teach your patient about the side effects of oral potassium and precautions um, associated, with, associated with potassium administration. Um, so there's a box of 6.4 on page 63 that summarizes precautions the patient should be aware of when taking this oral supplement. So do not substitute one potassium supplement for another. Take all forms of potassium with a full glass of water or juice. Dilute powders and liquids in water or juice exactly as directed. Don't crush extended release. You don't ex crush any extended release. Um, potassium tablets such as Slow-K or K-Dura tablets. Do not take potassium supplements if you already take uh, if you take potassium sparing diuretics such as spironolactone, aldactone, or uh, triamterene dirinium. Um, so if you're already taking a diuretic that is holding on to potassium with potassium sparing, then you don't want to keep taking more because then you're going to have too much potassium. You want to you want it to be leveled out. You want it to be even. So um, take potassium supplements with a meal. It can make your stomach a little upset. Um, report adverse effects such as nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and abdominal cramping to the healthcare provider. Have frequent lab testing done for potassium levels um, as recommended by your healthcare provider. So they're going to let you know, you know, come back and see us or, you know, if you're not in the hospital, if you're not under someone's watch, when you should be having your stuff checked. Um, so now we're going to go on to hyperkalemia, which is too much potassium. So hyperkalemia is a condition in which serum potassium levels exceeds 5 milliequivalents per liter. And it is rare in a person with healthy kidneys. So if you see there's too much potassium, it's probably someone who isn't able to get rid of some of this um, because they have insufficient kidneys. So the path behind this would be hyperkalemia may result from an actual increase in the amount of total body potassium or from the movement of intracellular potassium into the blood. Overuse of potassium-based substitutes or excessive intake of oral or IV potassium supplements can cause hyperkalemia. So use of uh, potassium-sparing diuretics such as spironolactone may um, also contribute to, contribute to hyperkalemia. So as I said before in this um, your tips for your patients, what you're going to teach them is if they're already taking a potassium sparing diuretic, something that is holding on to the potassium but getting rid of the rest of it, you don't want to keep giving them bananas. You don't want to keep giving them potatoes. You don't want to keep filling them up with stuff that's going to give them potassium if they're already holding on to what they have. You're going to give them too much, and this is going to result in hyperkalemia. So patients with kidney failure um, are at risk for hyperkalemia because the kidneys cannot excrete potassium. Uh, movement of potassium from the cells into the blood and other extracellular fluid is common in massive tissue trauma and metabolic acidosis. These are the compensatory effects. So metabolic acidosis is an acid-base imbalance commonly seen in patients with uncontrolled diabetes mellitus. Metabolic acidosis is an acid-base imbalance commonly seen in patients with uncontrolled diabetes mellitus. Acid-base imbalances are discussed later. So prevention. For patients receiving potassium supplements, hyperkalemia can be prevented by monitoring serum electrolyte values and the patient's signs and symptoms and by adjusting the dose accordingly. So you're going to keep an eye on them. For signs and symptoms, uh, most cases of hyperkalemia occur in a patient who is hospitalized or undergoing therapeutic measures for a chronic condition. So the classic manifestations are muscle twitches and cramps, 
later followed by profound muscular weakness, increased GI motility such as diarrhea, slow irregular heart rate, weak pulse, and decreased blood pressure. Um, your complications are going to be your cardiac arrhythmias, your respiratory failure, and occur in um, severe hyperkalemia causing death. So too little potassium is dangerous for your muscles. Too much is dangerous for your muscles. Um, so your diagnostic tests, um, you're going to have an um, in addition to an evaluated serum potassium level, your ECG changes are also associated with this because that's your heart muscle. Um, they're associated with hyperkalemia. If the patient has metabolic, metabolic acidosis, the serum pH falls below 7.35. Um, so your therapeutic measures for mild chronic hyperkalemia, dietary limitation of potassium-rich foods may be helpful. So you're going to not be giving them all those bananas. Potassium supplements are discontinued. We don't want to give them those anymore. Potassium-wasting diuretics are given to patients with healthy kidneys. So we're not going to be giving them the spironolactone. For patients with kidney problems, a uh, cation exchange resin, such as sodium polys, uh, polystyrene sulfonate, may be administered either orally or rectally. This drug releases sodium and absorbs uh, potassium for excretion through the feces and out of the body. Um, in cases of cellular potassium has moved into the bloodstream, administration of glucose and insulin can facilitate the movement of potassium back into the cells. So during treatment of moderate to severe hyperkalemia, the patient should be in the hospital um, on a cardiac monitor. So we're still thinking muscles have to do with potassium. Okay, so now we're going to go on to um, the calcium imbalances. So for uh, calcium is a mineral that's primarily stored in the bones and, and the teeth. So when you think calcium, what's the first thing you think? Milk. I've always heard milk. That's the first thing that comes to my mind. It's calcium. You get calcium from milk. So, um, and when, you know, they say got milk in the commercials there, you're thinking um, this is good for my bones. This is good for my teeth because your teeth are bones. These are just, this is good for you. So, um, our body needs a certain percentage of calcium. Um, and when they get out of balance, it's either going to be hypocalcemia or hypercalcemia. So a small amount is found in the extracellular fluid, and the normal value for calcium is 9 to 11 milligrams per deciliter, or 4.5 to 5.5 milliequivalents per liter. So um, minimal changes in serum calcium levels can have major negative effects on the body. So calcium is needed for proper function of excitable tissues, especially cardiac muscle. So calcium and potassium kind of, you know, bounce between the, the same field. They're both playing in muscles and um, in bones as well. So the two calcium imbalances are hypocalcemia and hypercalcemia. So we're going to start out with hypo low. Hypocalcemia occurs when the serum calcium level falls below 9 milligrams per deciliter or 4.5 milliequivalents per liter. Uh, pathology and the etiology behind this is although calcium deficit can be acute or chronic, and we need to back up and go ahead and cover that, acute is something that lasts for a little time. It's acute little time, and chronic is going to be something that is uh, it's going to be a lot longer, something that may not ever go away or something that's just going to linger for a really long time. So acute, short, chronic, long. Um, it can be either most patients develop hypocalcemia slowly as a result of a chronic disease or a poor intake. So postmenopausal women are at most risk for hypocalcemia. As a woman ages, calcium intake typically declines. Um, the parathyroid glands recognize this decrease and stimulate bone to release some of its stored calcium into the blood for replacement. 
Um, and the result of that is going to be osteoporosis, in which the bones become porous, which means there's holes in them, and brittle, and they fracture easily. So I'm going to break this down a little bit more. Postmenopausal women, older women who do not have their period anymore, are most likely at risk for hypocalcemia, low calcium. We're not taking it in as much. Um, it typically declines, and the parathyroid glands in our body are going to be like, hey, what's up with this? We don't have enough calcium? Okay, cool. So now we're going to stimulate the bone to release what's stored in there. Um, to fix what's in the blood. Easy problem, right? Like easily solved. Right and wrong. Our body's trying to right a wrong. It's trying to compensate for something, but now our bones are suffering because we don't have it there anymore. So this is osteoporosis. Anytime you hear osteoporosis, you're going to think of a little old lady. Um, the woman who is postmenopausal has a decreased level of estrogens, a hormone that helps prevent bone loss in younger women. So basically, as we get older, we are just losing it. Um, the immuno um, I'm sorry, immutability or decreased um, mobility also contributes to bone loss in many patients. So the patients at highest risk for osteoporosis are thin, petite, Caucasian women. Um, hypocalcemia can also result from inadequate absorption of calcium from the intestines, as seen in patients with Crohn's disease, chronic inflammatory bowel disease. Um, insufficient intake of vitamin D prevents calcium absorption as well. So conditions that interfere with the production of parathyroid hormones such as or a partial or complete surgical removal of the thyroid or parathyroid glands can also cause hypocalcemia because those sensors are gone. So finally, patients with hypophosphoratemia, um, usually those with kidney failure, often experience hypocalcemia. Calcium and phosphate have an inverse relationship. When one of these electrolytes increases, the other tends to decrease. So calcium and phosphate, calcium and phosphate, they're kind of buddies. One goes up, the other goes down. They can't, they got to have each other. So prevention. In the United States, the typical daily calcium intake is less than 550 milligrams. So a lot of times is what I like to do is I like to get on my computer. Or I like to get on my phone when it's talking about, you know, a level of intake or something. Um, I kind of like to kind of search and see if I can find a picture so that I know what I'm looking at. So let's see. I am looking for 550 milligrams. This is not a lot. Um, sometimes I like to look at it in a picture. Like I can see there's pictures of pills on here. Or, you know, if you think when you take an aspirin, you know, or you think you take a Tylenol, what is, you know, some most of the time they're going to be about 200 milligrams or something. So think a few of those like this intake of calcium is less than 550 milligrams in the United States and the recommended um, dietary allowance of calcium for adults from age 19 to 50 and uh, men age 50 and 70 is a thousand milligrams so we're taking 550 or less and we should be taking a thousand um, the RDA for women over 50 and men over 70 is a thousand two hundred milligrams so if you're older AKA postmenopausal or a men that's over 70. You know, it seems that men always have it good. They don't have to get stuff as soon as we do, but um, 1,200 milligrams of calcium is what we should be intaking each day. And the United States does not meet that. So hypocalcemia can be pre prevented by consuming calcium rich foods and by taking calcium supplements. Um, you can literally buy these over the counter. It is not hard to get your hands on them, but a lot of people would be mistaken when they, um, you know, they like to take their vitamins, they like to take their stuff throughout the day, um, and they'll you'll hear people say, well, you can't overdose on vitamins, and they'll just be take, 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 take. Well, yes, you can have too much of something, and that is where you would have hypercalcemia, um, you know, or 
you know, you're taking too much potassium, you're taking too much of something, too much of something can be a bad thing. So um, you can take calcium rich foods or take calcium supplements, but you still want to be careful with what you're taking. So these supplements can be purchased over the counter in any pharmacy or large food store, an inexpensive source of calcium for patients who do not require vitamin D supplementation is calcium carbonate or Tums, which provides 240 milligrams of elemental calcium in each tablet. Did not know that. Patients should be cautioned not to routinely take high doses of calcium without checking with their primary care provider. Why? Because too much of something can be a bad thing. Um, vitamin D supplementation may be required in addition to calcium for patients whose sun exposure is limited. Why do we think vitamin D and sun go hand in hand? Because being in the sun, you know, they tell you to go out and get some vitamin D. Go out and get you some vitamin D in the summertime. That's where sun sun gives you vitamin D. So if we have patients who are, you know, bedridden or they're inside all day, their sun exposure is going to be limited. So you may want to give them a vitamin D supplementation. Um, you know, get them some vitamin D over the counter. The sun's ultraviolet light causes the skin to manufacture vitamin D. So if we're not out in the sun, our skin is not going to be able to manufacture what it needs. Um, and we got to have this. So signs and symptoms of hypocalcemia. So chronic hypocalcemia is usually not diagnosed until the patient breaks a bone and it's usually a hip. So um, grandma so-and-so has, you know, she's been living on her own. She's a little, you know, older and she's not getting out in the sun like she used to. She's definitely not taking her intake of her um, thousand milligrams or uh, 1200 milligrams of calcium a day that she should be. And so she falls and she breaks her hip. And then she goes into the doctor and they say, hey, well, it looks like you're not getting enough calcium. And we see that this, you know, might be osteoporosis. So acute hypokalemia can occur after surgery or in patients with acute pancreatitis. Um, your signs include a change in heart rate, decreased blood pressure, mental status changes, hyperactive deep tendon reflexes, which we're going to get into that a little bit more, increased GI mobility. Anytime you see increased GI mobility, you're thinking fast. What's coming out fast? That's diarrhea. So diarrhea and abdominal cramping because you know your stomach hurts when you get diarrhea. Two classic signs that can be used to assess for hypocalcemia are tro um, trocio sign and um Chavostic sign. I just remember the TNC. Those are some big old words. But basically, um, when I see these two pictures, there's a picture is on page 64. It's an arm. It has a blood pressure cuff around it. And when you um, test for this sign, you're going to inflate the blood pressure cuff around the patient's upper arm for one to four minutes. In a patient with hypocalcemia, the hands and fingers become spastic and go into palmar flexion. So literally, when I think of the trocio sign, I think of a T-Rex because their arm looks like a T-Rex arm. And this was happened. This is what happens when they have low calcium and you put this blood pressure cuff on for one to four minutes, um, which kind of scares me because, you know, when we take blood pressure, we don't like to leave those on for more than a minute. So, um, but you're going to see their arm kind of spaz up a little bit and it's going to go into a palm reflection. And then to test for the, um, the C sign, you're going to tap the face just below and in front of the ear. Um, facial twitching on that side of the face indicates a positive sign. So trocio sign is more specific for hypocalcemia than um, chosvec sign. Um, in severe hypocalcemia, this is your cal uh, complications. Neuromuscular irritability can lead to tetany or continuous muscle contraction. So tetany is where you're, um, you're kind of having a muscle spasm and you're not controlling that. Um, the patient may have a sudden uh, 
laryngospasm that will stop air from entering the lungs. Seizures, respiratory failure, or cardiac failure can occur and lead to death if not aggressively treated. Um, so, you know, you're thinking maybe, you know, my eye twitched a little bit or my arm twitched a little bit. Well, that's fine. But when something inside of you starts twitching, then it's going to affect something a little differently. And that's where things get dangerous. So your diagnostic test for this is going to be the patient with hypocalcemia has a low serum calcium level and an abnormal ECG. Um, parathyroid hormone level may be increased as it attempts to stimulate bone to release more calcium into the blood. So the reason why this ECG might look differently is because, as we said, you're getting older, postmenopausal. Your body's like, hey, we don't see any calcium, but we got some stored up here in the back. So we're going to pull that out. They start pulling it from your bones and send it to the bloodstream. So this is going to affect things differently. Um, your therapeutic measures, in addition to treating the cause of hypocalcemia, calcium is replaced. Um, for mild or chronic hypocalcemia, oral calcium supplements with or without vitamin D are given. Calcium supplements should be administered one to two hours after meals to increase intestinal absorption. So we want to make sure that there's not anything on our stomach before we take this so it can start absorbing quicker. Um, be sure to check compatibility when administering calcium with other medications because there are medications that you cannot take it with. Um, that's just the way uh, the dice is rolled. So for patients with acute or severe hypocalcemia, IV calcium, gluconate, or um, calcium chloride are given. When a patient has a thyroid or parathyroid surgery and there's a danger that um, parathyroid hormone will be decreased, causing the serum calcium to drop, IV calcium must be readily available for emergency use um, if signs of hypocalcemia do occur. So you want to have this ready in case something goes sideways. Um, for patients with hyperphosphatinatemia, um, high phosphate. Usually those with kidney failure, aluminum hydroxide is used to bind the excess phosphate for elimination via the GI tract. So as phosphate decreases, the serum calcium level begins to normalize. Diet therapy is an important part of this. So you're going to teach your patient, their family, or caregiver which foods are high in calcium. And this is going to be on page 50 or 65 in table 6-3, 6.3, I'm sorry. Um, many foods today are fortified with calcium, so vitamin D foods are also encouraged, especially milk and other dairy products. There's the milk. For patients experiencing difficulty digesting dairy products and those who choose not to use dairy products, special attention must be paid to including other dietary calcium sources in the diet. So I will not be drinking any milk. I do not like milk, A, and B, I'm lactose intolerant. So I would be one of those patients that would have to have something else. So here's the list of the things that you can give somebody for sources of calcium. So you have fortified ready-to-eat cereals, Parmesan cheese that's hard, non-fat plain yogurt, Almond milk, love me some almond milk, all flavors. Tofu, raw, regular, prepared with calcium sulfate. Plain, low-fat yogurt, um, all flavors of soy milk. Um, mustard spinach, low-fat milk, mozzarella cheese, part skim. Um, skim milk, non-fat, reduced-fat milk, cheddar cheese, whole milk. Um, these are all things that you can give to someone as a supplement of calcium. So and now we're going to go over to hypercalcemia. So hypercalcemia will be a high calcium level. Hypercalcemia occurs when the serum calcium is above 11 milligrams per deciliter or 5.5 milliequivalents per liter. So pay, um, pay special attention to these because the past uh, couple ones that I've gone over, you're thinking, you know, how's there one of uh, one's 11 and the one's 5.5 and then another one was like nine something and then it was like in the points lower. Um, one is a milligram per deciliter and one is a milli equivalent per liter. So pay special attention to that. Um, I know for sure she's probably going to give us rather than what is a normal hyper 
you know, uh, what is hypercalcemia level? She's probably going to give us a scenario, and then you're going to have to know the normals to figure it out. So I would know these. Um, pathophysiology and etiology. Chronic hypercalcemia can result from an excessive intake of calcium or vitamin D. Um, kidney failure, hypo hyperparathyroidism, cancers, and overuse of prolonged use of thiazide diuretics. Remember, we said a diuretic is something that makes your body get rid of things, such as hydrochlorothiazide. Acute hypercalcemia can occur in an, as an emergency in patients with invasive or metastatic cancers, especially cancers of the blood or bone, because that is where your calcium is being used. So although many um, causes of increased calcium cannot be prevented, a person receiving calcium supplements should be monitored carefully. A lot of the times you have to remember these patients did not go to nursing school like you did. Most of them probably did not. A lot of these uh, patients are just taking something because they've heard that, you know, you should be taking your vitamins every day. They don't understand that too much can hurt them, too little can hurt them. So you're going to need to monitor them carefully. Some patients believe that if two or three tablets a day are helpful, consuming twice as much will help them even more. The result can be a serum calcium um, excess. So educating the public about proper amount of calcium needed each day and the danger of too much calcium is very important. So your signs and symptoms um, are going to be... Um, patients who have mild hypercalcemia or a slowly progressing calcium increase may have no obvious signs and symptoms. However, acute hypercalcemia is associated with increased heart rate and blood pressure, skeletal muscle weakness, and decreased GI mobility or motility. Um, so, kind of this, um, kind of similar to hypocalcemia, and then a little different. But we do know hyper or, or calci calcium in general, is going to deal with muscles as well. So um, we're going to look for that muscle weakness. And we know that decreased GI mobility, if your muscles are not uh, performing properly, your GI can be slowed. So complications, um, in some cases, the patients may experience kidney or urinary calculi, which are stones, kidney stones, um, resulting from excess calcium. In more severe cases of acute hypercalcemia, the patient may experience respiratory failure caused by profound muscle weakness or heart failure caused by arrhythmias. So we know that when our muscles start to, um, to atrophy, in a sense, when they start to dwindle down, well, um, my, my body's not working as well as it was before. And so my lungs are not going to be able to expand the way they were before. And I'm not going to be able to get a deep breath. Um, you know, so my heart rate's going to kind of pick up a little bit and my blood pressure is going to pick up a little bit because I'm trying to compensate because my body wants to, to fix it. We don't want to have to go to the doctor. My body's going to try and, and fix this for me, but it, you can't if you don't have the right levels of things that you need in your body. So the therapeutic measures for this, um, if you have hypercalcemia, you're going to be hospitalized and placed on a cardiac monitor because we're going to be want to watch that heart and how things are changing. Unless contraindicated by other conditions, the primary treatment is to give IV fluids and promote diuresis. So we are going to want to give you IV fluid and we're going to want you to pee, 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 pee and get that out. Saline infusions are the most useful solutions to promote renal excretion of calcium. And when you see saline, normal saline, that is the same um, the same as what's, uh, what your blood is. I believe the word is osmolarity. No, let me go back and look because I don't want to be wrong. No, I just read it over here. I'm not going to stop until I go back and find it. Yes, isotonic fluids that have the same osmolarity as the blood 
um, are usually going to be administered. So that's what your normal saline is. Um, the healthcare provider also discontinues thiazide diuretics if the patient was receiving them and prescribes diuretics that promote calcium excretion, such as ferrosamide or Lasix. It seems to be the most popular. Drugs that slow calcium movement from the bones to the blood may also be used. So remember we said our body was kind of compensatory and it was going to start pulling um, calcium from our bones to give to our blood. Well, there's a specific drug to slow that. And this is uh, pomidronate, uh, disodium, or adria. Um, zoledronic acid or zometa or calcitonin. Calcitonin uh, tones the calcium down. So if hypercalcemia is so severe that cardiac problems are present, hemodialysis, peritoneal dialysis, or um, ultrafiltration may be necessary to clean the blood of excess calcium. Um, so now we're going to move on to magnesium imbalances. So magnesium and calcium work together for the proper functioning of excitable cells such as cardiac muscle and nerve cells. So cardiac cell, muscle cells and nerve cells are your excitable cells. I think excitable because your heart's like wee all the time and your nerves are probably like wee all the time. So magnesium and calcium are going to work together for this proper function. Therefore, an imbalance of magnesium is usually accompanied by an imbalance of calcium. So you're going to see one and you're probably going to see the other because they're, they're buddies. They're going to hang out. So the normal value for serum magnesium is 1.5 to 2.5 milliequivalents per liter. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and give you guys a tip to remember these values at the very end. So hypomagnesemia magnesemia occurs when the serum magnesium level falls below 1.5 milliequivalents per liter. It results from either decreased intake or excessive loss of magnesium. Um, the causes of inadequate intake include malnutrition and starvation diets. Patients with severe diarrhea and Crohn's disease are unable to absorb magnesium in the intestines. Um, so, you know, don't be chasing around these diet plans and not knowing what you're looking into because this, um, this can jack you up. So another cause of hypomagnesemia is alcoholism. Alcohol causes both decreased intake and increased renal excretion of magnesium. Um, certain drugs such as loop and osmotic diuretics, uh, aminoglycosides, uh, and some anti-cancer agents such as, uh, platinol, can increase renal excretion of magnesium, um, which means it's going to cause your kidneys to get rid of this magnesium quicker. The signs and symptoms are similar to those for hypocalcemia because they work hand in hand, including the positive trocio and um, chovastec signs um, that we went over. So the, the eye test and then you have the arm with the uh, blood pressure cuff. So the goal of the management is to treat the underlying cause and replace magnesium in the body. Uh, magnesium sulfate is administered intravenously, and if the serum calcium level is too low, calcium replacement is prescribed. The patient is placed on a cardiac monitor as well because of magnesium's effect on the heart. Life-threatening arrhythmias can lead to cardiac failure and arrest. Um, your signs and symptoms are usually not apparent until the serum... Oh, let me go back. Um, Life-threatening arrhythmias can lead to cardiac failure and arrest. So now we're going to go to hypermagnesemia. I jumped a little too far ahead. Um, hypermagnesemia are too much results in the serum magnesium level that increases above 2.5 milliequivalents per liter. So the most common cause of hypermagnesia is if magnesia is increased intake coupled with decreased renal excretion caused by kidney failure. So you have too much magnesium and your kidneys are not getting rid of it as well. So it, you're holding on to it and you're getting more. So signs and symptoms are usually not apparent until the serum level is greater than 4 milliequivalents per liter. 
Then the signs and symptoms include bradycardia, which is slower, and other arrhythmias, hypotension, low, lethargy and drowsiness, we're going to slow it down, and skeletal muscle weakness. Um, if not treated, the patient experiences a coma, respiratory failure, or cardiac failure. So you have too much of this, and your body's like, mm-mm, we're shutting down. We're not doing this. So when kidneys are functioning properly, loop diuretics such as furosemide, Lasix, and IV fluids can help increase magnesium excretion. For patients with kidney failure, dialysis may be the only option. Um, so now we're going to go over to acid-base balance. We're nearing the very end. Um, so the cells of the body function best when body fluids and electrolytes are within a narrow range. So hydrogen and other ions that uh, must stay within its normal limits. The base or the amount of hydrogen determines whether a fluid is an acid or a base, and we remember these. So, an acid is a substance that releases a hydrogen ion. The stronger the acid, the more hydrogen ions are being released. A common acid in the body is hydrochloric acid, which is found in the stomach, and the base um, is a substance that binds hydrogen. So, a common base is bicarbonate. Um, alkali is another word for base. So, sources of acids and bases. Acids and bases are formed in the body as a part of a normal metabolic process. Acids are formed as end products of glucose, and, uh, fat, and protein metabolism. These are called fixed acids because they don't change once they're formed. Carbonic acid is a, um, a weak acid that can be formed when carbon dioxide resulting from cellular metabolism combines with water. Um, this acid can change to bicarbonate, a base, and hydrogen. Um, it is therefore not a fixed acid. So this seemed to be uh, what was pretty important on our test uh, the last time we had something body structure and function. Oh. So the extracellular fluid maintains a delicate balance between acids and bases. The strength of the acids and bases can be measured by pH. The pH of a solution can vary from 0 to 14, with 7 being neutral. 0 to 6.99 being acid, and 7.01 to 14 being base or alkaline. So the normal serum pH level is 7.35 to 7.45, which is slightly alkaline. So it must remain in this extremely narrow range to sustain life. An arterial pH lower than 6.9 or higher than 7.8 is usually fatal. So this is why... Um, it's important that we keep this stuff in balance because it's just a little, little one way or the other can mess you up. So control of acid-base balance. The body has several ways in which it tries to compensate um, for changes in serum pH. Three major mechanisms are going to be cellular buffers, the lungs, and the kidneys. So cellular buffers are the first attempt to return the pH to its normal range. Examples of cellular buffers are proteins, hemoglobin, bicarbonate, bicarbonate and phosphates. These buffers act as a type of sponge to soak up extra hydrogen ions if there's too many, if it's too acidic, or release hydrogen ions if there's not enough and it's too alkaline. The lungs are the second line of defense to restore normal pH. When the blood is too acidic, pH is decreased. Um, the lungs blow off additional carbon dioxide through rapid deep breathing. Um, this reduces the amount of carbon dioxide available to make carbonic acid in the body. If the blood is too alkaline or the pH is increased, the lungs try to conserve carbon dioxide through shallow respirations. The kidneys are the slowest to respond to changes in the serum pH, taking as long as 24 to 48 hours um, to assist with compensation. So the kidneys help in a number of ways, including regulating the amount of bicarbonate base um, that is kept in the body. If the serum pH lowers and becomes too acidic, the kidneys reabsorb additional bicarbonate rather than excreting it so that it can help neutralize the acid. If the serum pH increases and becomes too alkaline, the kidneys excrete 
additional bicarbonate to get rid of the extra base. The kidneys also buffer by forming acids and ammonium, a base. So um, acidosis or alkalosis that is corrected for by the body is referred to as compensated. So we've been saying this word kind of throughout. The pH is returned to normal or near normal, but the gases that monitor acid base balance, uh, PCO2 and HCO3, are abnormal. So now we're going to jump over to um, acid balance imbalances or acid base imbalances. They're caused by a number of acute and chronic illnesses or conditions. So the primary treatment for each of these is to manage the underlying cause, which corrects the imbalance, and then the role is to identify patients at risk and monitor laboratory test values for significant changes. So the lab tests that are used to evaluate acid-based balances are called arterial blood gases, so ABGs. Um, as the name implies, blood sample that is analyzed must be from artery rather than a vein. The femoral, brachial, and radial arteries are most often used to obtain the sample. Um, so ABG values are given in um, on page 67 in table 6-4. And this is telling you what your normal values are, respiratory acidosis with or without compensation, alkalosis, um, metabolic acidosis, and metabolic alkalosis. So I would definitely check that out. Um, the two broad types of acid-base imbalances are acidosis and alkalosis. Each of these imbalances um, can occur suddenly, and this is called an acute imbalance. So um, they can develop over a long period, resulting in a chronic imbalance. And when the serum pH level falls below 7.35, the patient has acidosis because the blood becomes more acidic than normal. So remember, our level is 7.35 to 7.45, and when it's too low, that's acidic. Um, so Acidosis can be divided into two types, respiratory and metabolic. Respiratory acidosis is caused because uh, by problems occurring in the respiratory system. Metabolic acidosis is a result of problems in the rest of the body. Um, so that's easy enough to remember. Um, when the serum pH level increases above 7.45, the patient has alkalosis because the blood becomes more alkaline or basic. Alkalosis is caused by too little acid in the body or too much base. It can also be divided into two types, respiratory alkalosis and metabolic alkalosis. Um, and it says to refer to uh, table 6.6 for respiratory and metabolic acid base imbalances. So I'm not going to read that chart, but it's basically telling you what's a decrease and what is an increase. And it's going to tell you what causes it and your clinical manifestations. It also explains what the mechanisms are in your body for this as well and the treatments. Um, so that concludes this chapter. I definitely suggest going through and doing these review questions because sometimes they pop up on the test and um, going through and knowing the terminology as well. So that's all for this chapter.